Today, my name is Evelyn Aka. I'm the founder and managing lawyer of Aka Business Immigration Law. We are based in Calgary, Alberta, and we have two offices in Toronto and Vancouver, Canada as well. I focus primarily on cross-border NAFTA immigration law for professionals as well as families and individuals looking to move to Canada or move to the United States. I would like to welcome you to my podcast. It's called Ask Canada Immigration Lawyer Evelyn Aka. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today, me and Laura, for this webinar called Cross-Border Business, Practical Immigration and Tax Solutions. By way of introduction, again, I am Evelyn Aka, the founder of Aka Business Immigration Law, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by my co-presenter, Laura McClemon, who will introduce herself in a few minutes. The plan today is to review cross-border immigration law, and Laura will discuss cross-border tax and provide solutions and strategies for both individuals and employers that send staff to the United States. Once both presentations are completed, we will have time to answer any questions that you may have. Laura, would you like to introduce yourself before I begin my deck? Sure. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us, as Evelyn said. Hopefully, you'll find our presentation informative. I know uh, I find Evelyn's uh, slides to be, uh, I'm almost a lawyer when I read them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll find them informative. If you have any questions for us specifically after the um, presentation, I know I speak for both Evelyn and myself to feel free to contact us. Um, we're generally happy to have a quick discussion uh, to give you an idea of, of what we can do for you and your, your organization. So I'm going to be focusing on the immigration piece, as I've indicated. A little bit of background about me for those who I don't know on the call or on the webinar. This is me. I started the firm now eight years ago, and I've been practicing law for 20 years and um, love immigration law and hope that we can provide some useful information to you. A little bit more about ACA Business Immigration Law. Our team is focused on ensuring that we smooth the way to the United States and Canada for professionals as well as their, their families and skilled workers. The focus of our presentation today will be on NAFTA. Um, and again, most of you know that NAFTA refers to the North American Free Trade Agreement. It was enacted in 1994, and I'm sure you hear lots about it on a regular basis now that it is being renegotiated between Canada and the United States. The main aspects of NAFTA that apply to you as individuals and professionals um, and companies are the three listed below. Business Visitor, B1 Visa, Professionals, the TN visa, the, the Treaty NAFTA visa, or the intercompany transfer, the L1 visa. And I will be discussing them all through this presentation, um, and Laura will be focusing on the impacts um, of entering the United States under one, two, or three of these categories. So many of you know that when you travel to the United States, you know, we are actually getting almost virtual visas. Because we're Canadians, we take it for granted that we can enter the United States under a visa category um, without the same level of scrutiny generally that um, 
people from other countries have to deal with. So even though we go through Customs and Border at the airport, many people don't realize they're actually getting a, a type of visa. So the B-1 visa is for business visitors. The U.S. B-2 visa is for going on vacation. So for instance, you want to go to Disneyland with your family. As a Canadian, you enter the CBP area at the airport, you're actually getting a visa without really um, knowing it, I think, as Canadians. So we're going to focus on the business side today. The B-1 visa is intended for short-term entry, meetings, internal training, business development, sales activity. Um, this is actually referenced specifically in the NAFTA as one of the benefits for both Mexicans, Canadians entering the United States. And it works the same for Americans coming into Canada. I always recommend that employers ensure that all their employees have a travel letter when they cross the border. Now more than ever, uh, I'm finding more and more that my clients are being questioned a little bit more um, vigorously. And it's always helpful to have a letter in hand just in case you need to produce it if you get extra questioning. One of the key elements of NAFTA Business Visitor B1 category is you cannot be getting paid. You cannot be receiving any compensation or financial benefit from the United States. You must remain on the Canadian payroll um, that you're on. And you cannot be engaged in work. Work is very much um, sometimes seen as a gray area. A uh, lot of clients want to push the boundaries of work, but we'll definitely talk about what is considered work and what is considered business visitor activity. We always ensure that our clients are prepped when they go to the border. Um, it's very important that they feel confident when they get there, that they're not nervous, that they tell the truth, and that they understand that the U.S. Um, CBP officers have significant discretion and, and significant power in terms of what could happen if they are refused and they could possibly be, be barred if they're seen to be misrepresenting in any way. This slide shows some examples of legitimate business activities under the NAFTA B-1 visa category. You can go down and see your colleagues internally at the related entity perhaps um, going down for meetings or training. You can attend conferences under this category, um, conventions. For instance, if you need to settle in a state, you can do that. You can negotiate contracts, and you can participate in some short-term training. These are legitimate B-1 visa activities in the United States. To be eligible for a NAFTA business visitor status, you must demonstrate that you are a Canadian citizen. So clearly, you need to have a valid passport when you get to the airport. And you need to understand the purpose of your activity in the United States. It has to be for qualified business activity that is legitimate. You cannot be working. And the business activities indicate they must be international in scope. This usually means, you know, as a Canadian going down to the United States, you are involved in business activities. That already is an international transaction. Um, you're crossing into the United States. The most important thing is you must not have the intention of entering the U.S. labor market and your primary source of remuneration remains outside the United States. As a business visitor to the United States, we always recommend that you, as I said before, have a letter that supports your verbal submissions. You need to know what to say and you need to know what not to say. 
we always suggest that our clients always tell the truth, but you also make sure you don't use the word work. Work in immigration is literally a four-letter word, meaning that it raises a lot of additional questions and probing and definitely will send you into secondary. So we recommend do not say work. Instead, if you're going for meetings, indicate I'm going for business meetings. I'm going to see my colleagues. I'm going for training. I'm attending a conference. Do not say anything related to work because that initially leads to further questioning and scrutiny. So these are the eligibility criteria for purposes of um, entering the United States. You must be working, strictly speaking, in Canada. And you must be a resident of Canada with the intention of going in for a short term and leaving after the short term entry that you have. You need to have enough funds to cover the expenses of your visit. So often what we do when we prepare NAFTA business visitor letters for our clients is we reference that absolutely um, you will remain on the Canadian payroll and that your employer is responsible for any expenses you may incur in the United States. If all of these criteria are in place, you may be eligible to enter the United States. Of course, assuming there's no inadmissibility, there's no criminality, there's no other reason for you not to be permitted entry. So what is your intention? This is a big factor when it comes to um, U.S. and Canadian immigration. You need to be able to satisfy the U.S. CBP that you have non-immigrant intention when you appear at the airport or the border. And you must present the proof to establish that you have non-immigrant intention. So for instance, you can't move out of your house and have all your worldly possessions with you in the car and say you're going as a business visitor. Clearly, they will see that you are abandoning your Canadian residence and will lead to significant questioning and likely refusal and, turn, and be turned around. So you must maintain your residence in Canada and your employment and your family stays there and all of those indicators of non-immigrant intention. People always ask me, how long can I go as a, as, a, as a visitor, as a business visitor? Generally, we don't recommend you stay for the maximum six months, but that is generally um, the maximum you can have as a business visitor. If somebody is going down for this for that long period of time, we always recommend that they might even have some kind of training schedule. If there's a training component for that six months, have it outlined so that you can satisfy the officers of CBP, you legitimately are not working. Um, if something changes after you've entered the United States and you do require an extension, extensions may be granted so long as you can continue to prove non-immigrant intention. That is the hurdle. One of the things I highly recommend to all my clients, literally, even if you're going down for, for family visits, even if you're going down for vacation, is I recommend that you apply for a Nexus Pass. It is really a valuable asset for Canadians to be able to expedite the border clearance process for those that are considered low risk and pre-approved. Um, it's $50. It is the most valuable $50 I've ever spent for me and my family to get into the expedited line. Um, and unfortunately, it is only for Canadian citizens or U.S. citizens who come to Canada. You cannot obtain the Nexus Pass if you are a permanent resident. So you must be a citizen.
and then I would do the process. It takes sometimes up to six months because of the because of the volume of applications, and you need to have an in-person interview. Okay, so now I'm going to start moving away from the NAFTA, um, NAFTA Business Visitor um, category and focus on actual work permit categories under NAFTA. So one of the ones we use the most is the NAFTA Professional, the TN Visa category, the Treaty NAFTA category. This is a visa that is very much um, used by professionals. It is renewable, um, ostensibly indefinitely, but generally three-year terms at a time. And you must meet the educational or experience criteria. So a lot of times people refer to the TN um, as the professional visa category. It allows one to work in the United States. It allows you to live in the United States. It allows you to bring your family with you into the United States. However, Spouses cannot work under the TN visa under their own TD visa, which is the dependent visa. Generally, the NAFTA professional lists about 66 plus professions, which include kind of old-fashioned professions such as engineer, lawyer, nurse, teacher. Um, it doesn't really reflect newer um, newer professions in the high-tech industry, for instance. Um, Things like even manager or director or vice president, these titles are not eligible NAFTA professional positions because they reference a lot of old school professional designations. I do hope things will change um, after, the, after the NAFTA negotiations. To qualify for a TN visa, you must show that you have the necessary credentials and NAFTA requires a degree for almost every one of the 66 plus professions and you must be performing the professional level activities while you're in the United States. As I indicated earlier, almost every one of the professions requires a bachelor's degree or more. There are very few exceptions to that rule. One of them is management consultant. You do not need a degree for that. You need to have at least five years or more experience in the, in the area that you're consulting on, plus references and a consulting agreement to qualify as a consultant. The scientific technician technologist category, this is another one that does not require a bachelor's degree. Instead, you need to be working in collaboration or under the purview of a degreed professional. So for instance, if you're working with an engineer who has a degree and you are a technician technologist, you're eligible to apply for a TN. And you need to meet all the requirements. Uh, Two-year diploma is usually required for the technician technologist. And also the technical publications writer and the medical lab technologist. These are positions that do not need degrees, but every single one of the other ones requires a bachelor's degree. I've indicated here um, the TN definitions of the bachelor's degree. Generally, it's a three-year or more um, program, and you need to obtain the degree. And you need to be able to show the degree when you get to the airport. U.S. immigration, even more so than Canadian immigration, requires most times original documents. So I reference clients all the time, take it off the wall, bring the degree with you the day you make your application because they want to see an original and they can absolutely ask to see that original or your application will be refused. Um, when we talk about post-secondary diplomas and certificates, they're defined as two years or more um, secondary education. 
that's become that are that you gain a diploma in at the end of it all. So the TN visas are generally not dual intention. So when you go in as a TN visa holder, you must be aware that your intention must remain as a non-immigrant. You cannot go in as a TN visa holder with the intention of becoming a citizen of the United States. When you enter, you're entering as a non-immigrant for that three-year term. However, there are ways to move your status from TN over the period of years to green card and perhaps to to US citizenship and become naturalized. But it takes many, many years and it is not it's not a direct route to green card status. People need to be aware of that. So one of the interesting categories under the TN, as I've mentioned already, is the management consultant category. This is one where you are not seen to be an employee. You are a consultant. You're providing services that are arm's length and that are directed toward improving the managerial, operating, and economic performance of the business. And you would be advising the management or leadership of that organization. I don't recommend generally to get a three-year consulting uh, TN visa because it definitely appears more like an employee engagement. However, you can get a year, possibly two years, and as long as your engagement continues, um, you can renew it as necessary and as the consulting agreement requires. So you can get a renewal of the consulting agreement to also extend your TN as a consultant. But you need to be aware that over time, U.S. immigration sees you back and forth every year or every time you travel for purposes of providing your engagement services, you will be under more scrutiny at each entry over time. All right, one of my last slides now will be the NAFTA intercompany transferee. Um, this is a category for those people who are able to transfer to the United States as either an L1A visa holder or an L1B. L1A is the executive and managerial level, or L1B, which is the specialized knowledge category. In order to qualify for this, besides the entities, the corporate entities having to be related, you must have worked for the entity in Canada for a minimum of 12 months in the preceding three years so that you could transfer to the related corporate entity in the United States in either, again, an executive managerial level position or as a specialized knowledge worker. If you are... Um, eligible for the L1B, you will obtain five years total. Initially, it's three years at a time, and then you'll get a two-year renewal, up to five years as a specialized knowledge worker. If you're a managerial or executive, the maximum term will be seven years with initial three years and then two two-year extensions. Non-NAFTA intercompany transfer would reply to those who are not American or not Mexican. So for instance, if you're transferring somebody from your German location to the United States, they don't qualify under NAFTA, and they will have to qualify on their own through the standard L1 category. They're not eligible to be processed at the airport. This is one of the main advantages for Canadians using NAFTA. Okay, I have a few practical pointers to discuss now about going to the border. And yes, everybody will be eligible. You will receive the slides at the end of this presentation um, when we send you as well a survey to let us know how we did today. We always tell people to tell the truth. You need to make sure you're prepared when you go to the border. 
ensure you have proper supporting documentation, and know that if uh, if you are searched, um, U.S. Immigration can review your mobile phone. They can review your um, your laptop. So you want to make sure that there is nothing with you that is inconsistent to what you're saying at the airport. If something looks like it's going off the rails, never insist that you um, get approval. If it's looking like it's going to be a refusal, please ask instead to see if you can withdraw the, um, the application and come back with more information and more documents to satisfy them. Um, it's always better to have a withdrawal than a refusal. And also, because these are professional applications, whether you're B1 or TN or an L, make sure you also look the part of a professional. Appearance is important. I say this all the time. Um, when you're doing an application at the border, watch out for issues related to criminality. If you know you have had a previous conviction or a prior refusal related to a conviction, you need to ensure you clear that up before you go back. You don't want to be appear to be showing up when you know that you are essentially inadmissible and it looks like you're trying to sneak into the country. That doesn't help your case at all. If, if there are any entry visa requirements, you need to know ahead of time. So, for instance, permanent residents of Canada need visas before they can enter the United States. So even as a business visitor, you as a permanent resident need to be processed at the Canadian, at the U.S. consulate in your city to get that B-1 visa put into your passport before you can enter the United States. Be aware of changes to the law. Um, things happen very quickly in immigration, and if you're not sure, speak to a professional who can assist you. So this is just a little bit about what we do here at ACA Business Immigration Law. I'm not going to uh, read it all, but I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for participating in this, and I will be passing on the slides to Laura, who will focus on the tax elements, and then at the end, she and I will both ac accept and entertain any questions you may have, either typing them out or we will unmute you and have a discussion about tax and immigration. Thank you very much. Laura? Thank you for joining us again. Evelyn, I have some questions, but we can leave those to the end um, regarding some of your the interesting mm -hmm. points on, on crossing the border. but. Um, I am actually going to take this one step further and just up the excitement level of this webinar and talk about tax. Um, my name is Laura McClemon. I've been uh, doing cross-border tax um, and expatriate tax, uh, helping people meet their expatriate tax filing requirements for more than 20 years. I am both a U.S. Uh, certified public accountant and a chartered professional accountant here in Canada. Um, my partners and I, uh, we have offices in Vancouver, Calgary, and Ottawa. Uh, we've been advising mid to large size companies on their payroll and income tax and the personal income tax obligations of their employees for about the same amount of time, if not longer uh, than 20 years. Um, so we've done a lot of handholding. We've done a lot of rolling around on the floor. I can't believe this. This is going to drive me crazy. So hopefully uh, I'll, I'll bring some new ideas to the table for you. Um, and for those of you who aren't aware, um, of the issues with respect to cross-border employees. I'll first go into that, and then we'll, we'll come to, to, to the point of, of where we have some solutions for you. Uh, what I will talk about today is um, in line with what Evelyn went through. Um, I'm Really, the, the, the focus of this presentation is to talk about those people that you don't normally, as um, 
perhaps a, a key stakeholder in your organization, uh, that being a, in human resource, global mobility, or probably taxation. In small to mid-sized companies, we find uh, there's one person that does it all. Um, we're going to talk about the frequent business travelers. Generally, a uh, rule of thumb in my, in my um, world, that's individuals who spend less than 30 days in the U.S., um, they're typically not a project employee. They are going down for those meetings and for the intentions that Evelyn went through with respect to a B1 uh, business visit, uh, visitor. Short-term temporary assignment, I'm not going to go too much into this because I feel like companies have already got this well handled. If they are assigning um, employees on that L1A or... Um, or uh, the um, TN visa, and they're they're setting up the proper payroll and setting up the the proper controls and, and income tax disclosures for those short short term temporary assignees. Um, we're not going to talk about long term temporary assignment or um, a permanent assignment today. Uh, those again are are separate issues, relocations. Um, but in talking about our uh, business travelers and our short-term travelers, we are going to, um, hopefully, some of our solutions will help you identify those stealth travelers. I think there's there are less of stealth travelers in the world uh, than there once was. Um, uh, those are individuals who just seem to have free reign. Generally, they seem to be in business development, and they, they cross the border at will whether they have the proper immigration or uh, tax situation in place. Um, so some of our solutions will hopefully um, assist you um, in, in getting there um, to identify these self-travelers and comply with your frequent business travelers. So why should we talk about this now? Um, this is we hear this a lot. In fact, I just did um, some one-on-one -on -one sessions last week with some uh, frequent business travelers, and uh, as I sat down with them to have them uh, fill in waivers and get items for U.S. filing, um, uh, and they're employees of a Canadian company, their their comments to me were, "I've been doing this for ten years, just like this. So why are we doing this now?" and um, the answer to that simply is their company has decided it's now time to comply. Uh, the, the environment that is right now um, really encourages compliance. And I think the likelihood, not that it's any, uh, not that it should be a deci decision factor, but it, it is. I'm not ignorant to that fact. The likelihood of getting caught um, has increased with the, you know, the digital era. Um, but there's also a frequent uh, increase in, in cross-border travelers. As Evelyn said, it's very easy as Canadians for us to cross over to say we're going for business meetings, um, at least for most of my clients. Um, uh, so there is an increase in that cross-border travel. In addition, um, in the tax world, there is heightened sensitivity to cross-border travel. Governments want their share. I don't know of many governments that are saying, "Hey, we're in a, a you know positive uh, you know uh, uh, budget situation. We have more money than we need." They want their share, um, and you can see this in the Amazons and Googles of the world, where they're doing business out of Ireland, um, and now governments in the EU are very upset because they feel that Ireland and these companies have cheated them out of their tax. BEPS Action 7 is a um, OECD sort of 
um, sort of tax treaty reference. And this is a base erosion and profit shifting um, uh, action coming out of a, a global organization that's really um, uh, focusing on key employees and the activities of key employees in other countries. And these key employees often in our world would be referred to as frequent business travelers. And what the BAPS Action 7 is really pointing towards, um, and I think it's a few years out before everything is, is full oversight and implemented, is really these frequent business travelers can create real corporate tax issues for organizations. Of course, voluntarily complying versus complying in response to audit or review. Again, like I said, there's a lot of digital uh, digitization, if that's the word, of, of records. People now have to give uh, passports when they cross the border, whereas eight years ago that that wasn't required. Um, sometimes they didn't even ask you for proof of identification, and now it's required always. So there's there's constant tracking of travelers crossing the Canada-U.S. border, and it will only become a period of time before that information starts to get shared between different government agencies uh, once they figure out the privacy rules. Um, and of course, there is more information regarding your obligations. It's harder to um, uh, it's harder to argue that uh, for people that are responsible for this disclosure to argue that they didn't know. So 10 years ago, uh, what did this look like? Um, you know, we had Canco going with a U.S. customer or, or company or U.S. project, and we wanted um, uh, people were crossing the border. So 10 years ago with Canco and we had one traveler perhaps crossing the border, <laughs> whereas now we have a situation. We have key execs and sales teams, project managers, engineers, installers crossing the border, and we have far more volume crossing. And on top of that, we've got more oversight happening at the border. The border guards are are, are questioning um, these travelers more, and they're tracking their travelers more. So in my belief, we should be tracking our travelers more. Again, why now? These are just uh, some key headlines um, that have reached mainstream media. Uh, the, the rise of tax shaming. I was actually at a conference in 2013 where uh, 1,500 tax colleagues, imagine how exciting that was, and I discussed the morality of paying tax even though you can exempt yourself from paying that tax under tax laws. There is more focus on, on governments getting their fair share of tax. So, so what does that mean? What does that mean for you as an organization with cross-border travelers? It means that you need to be aware of your obligations. Um, when you have individuals crossing the border, there's payroll tax obligations. Um, there's obligations for your individual uh, for your individual employees to report their activity, um, their earnings in the U.S. Um, uh, on U.S. tax returns. There can be implications on a, from a corporate tax perspective created by these um, cross-border travelers. Um, and so why, why should you pay attention? There's lots of penalties for failure to comply. Um, and prospective, uh, doing this on, a, on a, a voluntary basis or as you uh, complying properly can also help the organization plan around all of these items and reduce that burden 
that can fall on the cor- uh, on the corporation, fall on the employee, or fall on um, yourselves as individuals who are stakeholders in this this um, area. Um, the impact on corporate reputation, bad publicity. Um, we've seen this a bit with some executives crossing the border, and it more comes from a, um, um, an immigration standpoint. But generally, when we deal with executives who are frequent business travelers, the last thing they want to worry about is being caught or being offside from a tax perspective. So perhaps it's less of an impact on the corporate reputation, but more an impact on the reputation of the individuals who are to help those executives comply. Um, one of the other, because a large portion of, of the individuals that we deal with, and, and similar to, to Evelyn, I think, is we deal with project-driven companies, companies that are doing business cross-border, and they're sending individuals down to work on specific projects. Um, if, if you're not complying proactively and you're not costing out the price of the, uh, the U.S. tax implications of your individuals that you're sending down to service U.S. clients, um, you can get caught off guard. We're dealing with a client right now that had a large U.S. contract and inadvertently triggered a permanent establishment in the U.S., with B1 visitors, with frequent business travelers. Um, it's, it's an unusual situation, but this is what happened. And the cost to comply for those travelers was not factored into the cost of the overall project. Luckily, it was a lucrative project. But for those working on smaller margins, if you are a project manager sending employees cross-border, um, this can impact your performance and the performance of your company. So I'm, I'm generally assuming individuals who are on this call have heard all the discussion of the requirements of business travelers, but just very quickly, from a payroll tax perspective, what's the obligations of an employer with these business travelers, these B1 travelers that maybe are spent 10, 15 days in the United States in a year? Um, your, the requirement as an employer is to really, first of all, understand where those employees are working. Determine the amount of taxable income they've earned within the U.S. Now, when I get to this point, most employers will say to me, they're not working because they've been counseled by Evelyn to say, you're not working. These B-1 visitors have not been working in the U.S. They're just going on meetings or they're just on training. Well, from a tax perspective, the minute there's boots on ground in the U.S. by a Canadian employee, and that employee is performing services or uh, performing something in the way of their job and getting paid for it, that is taxable, reportable income in the United States. And there generally is a requirement to withhold and remit U.S. federal and or state income tax, or you need to obtain a waiver of that requirement to withhold and remit. So um, employers are required to determine, uh, as I mentioned, you have all these obligations. And um, at the end of the day, you're also required to report any wages earned by a frequent business traveler to the IRS and the state, either on Form W-2 or 1042-S. There's very few exceptions to the withholding requirement. One of the biggest exceptions that many of you might breathe easy because you have very short-term frequent business travelers would be um, where the individual is an employee of the Canadian corporation, They're only present in the U.S. for less than 90 days in the year total, not 90 working days, just total. And the pay relating to their services in the U.S. doesn't exceed 3,000 U.S. 
Now, don't get too excited because if you have an employee with $100,000 US of income, so say about 130,000 Canadian, if they spend eight days in the US, they're out of this exception. All is not lost. They actually could, in most cases, the individuals that Evelyn was referring to, provided they're paid by their Canadian company, they are likely not taxable in the US under the Canada-US tax treaty. However, just because they're not ultimately liable for US tax, it's not relieving you as an employer from the withholding and remittance requirement of federal US tax, and in many cases, state tax. The employee is also still require, required to file a US tax return, get a US ID number. If they only have a B1 visa, they would get a US tax ID number versus a social security number. The employer would still be required to report wages to the IRS, and there's just a significant administrative burden. I will say the first year is the most difficult year um, for applying for a waiver under the treaty, and in most cases, this is where we start to work with employers to help them comply. Most employers sit here on this slide and sit in this world where the employee qualifies for an exemption, a treaty exemption, but nothing's been done. And the reason nothing's been done is because it's a fairly exhaustive um, uh, uh, paper pushing process and employees generally do not like to comply with, uh, they generally Canadian employees don't like to hear that they have to provide information to the IRS just to file a zero return. It's at this stage that we get involved and we will generally work with the employer and the employee to get through that first year um, and explain why the process is important to not only the employer, but also to the employee. Corporate tax, I'm not going to talk uh, in too much detail about because that's really not the focus. But ultimately, one of the uh, larger successes that we do have when we talk about um, compliance here is we talk to, to the ultimate end goal, which is the employee generally carries the requirement to disclose this income to the United States. So regardless of what the employer decides to do, should you decide not to prepare a W-2 or a 1042S or get the appropriate waivers or withhold and remit tax, the requirement for an employee to file a U.S. tax return is still there. So I'm sure most of you have encountered the, the, the case where someone's been 25 days in the United States on primarily business meetings and um, training, and you've indicated to them that they do need to file an income tax return. When the employer's not complying, there's no require, the employee feels that there's no requirement for them to comply as well. But the individual requirement and the individual liability to file a return still sits with the employee. As well, just because an individual is treaty exempt doesn't mean that the, uh, the states will follow the same, um, this, the same methodology or the treaty. So the Worldwide ERC is Employee Relocation Council. Uh, they publish a magazine. Within that magazine, they had done a survey with respect to business travel. Obviously, you can see this is one of the key focuses of mobility right now is how do we track all our business travelers now that people are moving all over the place and can generally the world's opened up for a lot of employees. 
um, from various countries. One of the challenges for the tax or human resource or global mobility groups is how do we track these people and then how do we comply and how do we comply efficiently? Um, I'm sure all of you have encountered, yes, okay, we can comply, but it's almost impossible when you try to determine one, how 100% compliance happens. I think part of that problem is because there's very limited, up to this point, there's been very limited tracking tools that work well for the individuals that are interested in this sort of data. Um, before we go down the path of tracking your employees, the first thing you have to decide, however, is whether you do want to track your employees. You will get a lot of information should you use, for example, the tracking software specifically built for business travelers. You will get that information. So before you get that information, decide whether what you're going to do with it. Um, but most, most organizations are using data from employee expense reports and company travel um, providers. These largely come in the form of a large Excel spreadsheet showing dates of bookings of tickets in and out of country. I understand that compliance at that point is overwhelming because quite often it's up to the individual, the tax department or HR or global mobility to review all these documents and determine whether there's an issue or not, and then how will you move forward? So generally on top of that, all the challenges of tracking, we have the cost of compliance. Um, and you really have to weigh that against the cost of non-compliance. So an, an estimate of cost of compliance, just in first year, let's say you decide you want to comply for your business travelers, estimated employee time involving the business traveler and the, the group in charge of making sure they comply, we put it at about five and a half to six hours per employee, just to determine their tracking, their travel records, go through it, determine whether there is a compliance issue. And then if you choose to use a third party, um, to assist with your payroll reporting, waivers, ITIN applications, filing of a tax return, you can see the costs can really add up. Now, for my Americans who are on the, the call, this is in Canadian dollars as an estimate, so it might not be that expensive. The following years, however, these costs of compliance can be reduced significantly. In this situation, we're not even implementing any technology to improve your, your cost of compliance. Or, so payroll reporting, you can outsource your payroll reporting if you've got a good cross-border payroll group. That may become more efficient once you build up your, your uh, population. Um, you're dealing with employees less. There's less convincing. You only need to apply for an ID number once. So the fees from a third party are reduced and the amount of time required to track these individual travelers is reduced. Compare this to the cost of non-compliance, which would generally be borne by the corporation, penalties for failure to withhold US tax for those employees for whom waivers weren't applied for, failure to file the form 1042S, assuming that a waiver was filed and, and you didn't prepare the reporting form, similar to the failure to file a W-2 information form, Failure to disclose income on an income tax return, even if that income is ultimately exempt from tax under a treaty. There's company exposure to U.S. tax. If you're not tracking your cross-border population, how many days in on which project um, and the activities they're performing. Um, 
exposure to U.S. tax with U.S. tax reform might not be that terrible anymore, but it's still a real um, a real concern. So you have all of those that exposure plus the original cost of compliance because you're going to be forced to do all the compliance we talked about previously, applying for waivers, getting ID numbers, filing tax returns. In addition, for in a very um, sort of mobile environment where employees are switching employers a lot more, you may be required to remit tax. Let's say an audit occurs two years after the fact. You may be required to remit tax that should have been withheld. Um, and if the employees have left, even if that tax should be refunded under treaty, recovery of that withheld tax may not be possible. So how, what do we recommend to get started? Identify your key mobile employees, educate them on the key activities that create potential U.S. tax issues. Honestly, the worst discussion is that first discussion, because generally you're sitting around a table of executives and you're explaining the problem to the people who are creating the problem. The executives are generally the ones that are frequent business travelers and the ones that you should be, that are considered key mobile employees. Understanding, starting from a current exposure, whether you decide to comply for 2017 or not, helps you to get your corporate cross-border tax plan into place on the, for these frequent business travelers. And then put a plan in place to prospectively track your employee movement. I'm a huge believer in technology. There's some great travel tracking apps out there uh, that you can provide to employees. They do come with a cost, but ultimately it reduces the burden on you, the individual who has other things to do than pour over time codes and expense reports. Um, estimate your employee time in the U.S. at the beginning of a project. For project-driven companies, This, I honestly think this is the best-selling uh, feature if you believe that cross-border compliance should be important to your organization. If you're project-driven, you need to start considering the compliance costs as part of the project costs. And ultimately, consider assignment of those Canadian employees who are doing business in the U.S. for your organization who can create corporate tax issues for you. Um, it lets you, the more information you have, the better decisions that can be made. I've gone through this, I think, significantly. Um, I will say just because um, a, a, a remittance isn't made or a tax form isn't filed, that does not exempt the employee from having any sort of responsibility with reporting their, the income on an individual return. Um, employers making a choice to not disclose the income in the United States for an employee that is taxable in the United States should really inform the employee that they do have some requirements themselves, whether the employer complies or not. Obviously, I've gone through all these, uh, these problems, these issues. I think the focus primarily is on immigration with these frequent business travelers, um, and they do create um, uh, immigration issues, but I do think it's not long before tax issues start to become a very big reality in terms of getting caught and questioned at the border. Um, it creates, I'm not going to lie, this compliance for business travelers creates far more work than anyone's ever been uh, doing before for tracking travelers. And that's why I think technology really does help in this matter and should be employed in almost every instance. 
Um, we can help. We do presentations. We do handholding. We do um, individual one-on-one -on -one meetings. We assist in getting ITINs for and, and preparing waivers for employees. Like I said, the first year is the worst year. Um, and generally what we found with clients, once they become compliant after that first year, and there's lots of headaches, I, I kind of tell it as it is, um, that it, everything becomes a little bit easier and there's actually long-term um, better open planning that can be done. If you have any questions, do contact me after the, the webinar or ask them now. I think we have some time. We went a little bit over time. Um, yeah, I think we have some questions. Um, okay, so great. Do you want to answer them? Um, so I see one person who's been very uh, <laughs> active is one of my friends. Um, what I wanted to, one of the questions is Colleen is asking if we've seen a tightening of TN visas in the most recent administration. And I started typing a response and I thought I would just answer it. So anecdotally, we do hear from clients that there is a different tone from US CBP. Um, it seems much more military and, you know, much more... Um, less friendly and they do have the ability now more than ever to share information with Canadian immigration and they are um, so you should assume that they have access to everything if they ask you a question you just tell the truth because they usually already know the answer and there's more um, instances of people's cell phones being taken you're off you have to give up the password and they have the ability to check and see um, again, I think if you qualify and have a degree and have all your ducks in a row and have original documents and have worked with somebody who knows how to prep you, you'll be fine. That hasn't changed, but there just seems to be more of a suspicious nature um, right now dealing with U.S. immigration given the current administration. Um, and then the same person has a question for you, Laura. What are the obligations as individual management consultants with regards to payroll and corporate tax? Okay, so assuming um, uh, individual management consultants, uh, there's there's two, you know, everything about um, what I've said about employers and employees. If you're an incorporated management consultant, all of that would apply. So first and foremost, your company would have some um, forms to fill in for the U.S. Uh, customers um, to alleviate you from any withholding at a corporate level. But then if you are the employee of your company, you're then required to obtain from that employee, and I can answer one of the other questions I have here, to obtain from your employee a, a waiver. Um, and, and that waiver specifically, I was asked, is, is Form 8233, which essentially is used by employees of Canadian companies to identify the amount of their income that would be exempt from U.S. tax. In order to file that 8233, um, and you can file it as, a, as an independent management consultant or as an employee of your management consulting company, you would um, have to obtain a U.S. ID number. That form actually has to be filed with the IRS, um, a specific withholding unit. Um, and the only um, they will reject the form if there's no U.S. ID number on it. So generally, we get involved and we will assist with the application of an ID number with the waiver. And we recommend it because it alleviates your requirement as an employer to withhold any U.S. payroll tax. Our experience with the IRS is they are not quick to refund any non-resident income tax at this point. Um, it's very difficult for um, 
non-resident employees who have had tax withheld either on 1042S or a W-2 to obtain that refund on a timely basis. The same is true on vice versa with Americans coming up to Canada, by the way. But. Are there any other questions? Uh, Laura, I think you said you had some questions for me. The yeah, there was one other question, was whether a tax return was required if that waiver that I just mentioned is obtained? Um, mm -hmm. In most cases, yes. If the income is exceeds the U.S. personal exemption, which is $4,050 for 2017, then a tax return generally is required. Um, and it should be noted that in 2018, there is no longer a personal exemption. So from $1, a U.S. tax return is required. And you're required to disclose the fact that you are taking a treaty position in the United States. Um, so... Uh, yes, the answer is a tax return is required if a waiver is obtained for an employee. Great. Okay. Is there anything else from any of our attendees before you all log off? I'm just going to put our pictures back up. Do you want to do the same? Any immigration questions for me? If not, um, we will uh, wrap it up. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I see another one. Um, if you are an engineer in business development, what should be the appropriate title? Very good question. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it really, for me, if you are my client, I would say that you should get a TN visa because it would eliminate a lot of the questions every time you are doing business development. What happens is the more they see you, the more they just assume you are working. And so the hassle will come. And because in order to do your job in business development, you need to have that engineering background to, to sell those services. So I think that it goes to the foundation of your role um, is your engineering degree. That's what I would do if I were you. I hope that's helpful. And if you have more questions, you just feel free to give me a call anytime um, and we can work on it more. And then it says more questions. <laughs> Should engineer be required in the actual title? I would. I would probably call you a... Um, engineering business developer or engineering consultant or something in that that realm because it just makes it easier for them to make that bridge between the business development and the engineering component of your job. You're welcome. <laughs> Evelyn, I have a question. Sure. Uh, we hear a lot, so we deal a lot with companies that are transitioning their B1 employees to either, L well, in this case, it was into an L1A. And they yeah. use that 30 days as a rule of thumb because generally, uh, the more frequent these individuals are crossing on a B1, it seems to get more uncomfortable at the border for them. Is that true or yeah. is that only on? I think it is true. Um, I hear this regularly too. I mean, every time you enter as a B1, you have to satisfy USCBP that you truly are a business visitor. And as I said, I say this to most of my clients, the more you travel, the more the probing will occur. They will really start probing. Really, you were just here last week for five days and they can see every entry you make. So they can see a pattern of travel. So I just generally say, you know, um, if you're not getting hassled and if everything is going smoothly, again, if you have a nexus pass, life is much easier as a business visitor to when you truly are doing business visitor activity. But if you start getting pulled into secondary, on a regular basis and you qualify for an L1 and the company supports it, I would do that just to avoid the hassle. It's truly just, 
an ease and a comfort that you know you'll get in without any problems. Question may be out of scope. Does the tax treaty apply to corporate income, i.e. a Canadian subsidy or in the U.S.? Canadian subs Canadian subsidiary in the U.S. So, so yeah, a, a, a U.S. subsidiary of a Canadian company. Absolutely, there is tax treaty provisions for um, uh, for cross border income for a company in Canada doing business in the U.S. There are corporate um, uh, tax treaty articles that will um, alleviate your obligations in the U.S. Um, the, the tax treaty waivers are available. They're W-8 Ben E's. You can contact me after the, the call. It's a little bit out of scope um, for the, the business travelers. I will say, though, your individuals, if you're in a service-oriented business, the amount of your employees, the amount of employees crossing into the U.S. and doing business on connected projects in the U.S. can create um, taxation for a Canadian company in the U.S., I think that's it. We'd like to thank you so much for participating and joining us today. As I indicated, I will be uh, making sure everybody gets a copy of the deck um, with our contacts as well. And the, it'll also it's also been recorded, so anybody who missed will be able to listen in and watch the, the deck at their convenience. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining Thanks, me. Thanks, uh, And I look forward to more um, interesting webinars. If you have any topics, um, those of you that are here that you would like to hear more about on the immigration and tax side, please drop us a note. We'd love to be able to provide more knowledge and information. Thank Perfect. you and have a great day. Thanks all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that's the end of our podcast. I hope the information was valuable to you. Please do let me know if you have any questions. You can reach us at akalaw.com, A-C-K-A-H-L-A-W.com, or you can contact us by phone at 403-452-9515. Have a great day. Thank you.